This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. All of Westminster is talking about the files released by The Telegraph on the WhatsApp messages of Matt Hancock during the pandemic. Katie, to tell us through what we've learned today. So The Telegraph has obtained over 100,000 messages um, sent between uh, Matt Hancock and other ministers during the pandemic. Mm. They have accessed leads through Isabel Oakeshott, who was a ghostwriter on Matt Hancock's pandemic diaries. But I don't think he intended those diaries to continue um, in the form they are now taking on the front of the... T- <laughs> <laughs> on the, the never-ending Max Hancock diary. Yeah, on the front of the Telegraph today, and I think the, the the steer is that there'll be a lot more front pages of this, and lots more disclosures coming from the Telegraph as they as they go through the, the various things as messages these messages unveil. I mean, the top headline and what they went for, the, for their initial splash relates to care home advice, um, ultimately uh, suggesting that Matt Hancock rejected care home COVID advice. Um, he now disputes that claim, but this was advice on COVID tests of people going into care homes in England at the start of the pandemic. The suggestion that he did not listen to uh, the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, has led to you know relatives of people who passed away to ultimately come out and voice their dismay. Matt Hancock is a denying that and b questioning the morality and the The legality legality of the decision by the telegraph to run these messages there's some talk that he could sue but i think all these things there's often lots of talk we have to see where it actually lands so that's the main story i mean i think there's other parts already so there's a message exchange between George Osborne and Matt Hancock, which ultimately relates to the testing target um if we all remember when Matt Hancock said he was going to hit his target on testing and it's pretty unedifying it's Matt Hancock saying I need a splash mate effectively um, <laughs> we've all been there as jumpers <laughs> yeah and ultimately being told you know you're not doing very well on testing it's like well no I'm going to move this around and move that I think it confirms particular exchange what we all knew at the time and what we said at the time which was Matt Hancock was racing ahead with his target but the means of filling the target wasn't necessarily the best way to actually distribute tests around the country and now in writing you have the fact that clearly Matt Hancock was trying to get some good press from it we'll get more from this but I think it's definitely an uneasy time for Matt Hancock and, and the people who sent him messages and received messages from him thousands and thousands of uh, of messages as you say I think three times the length of the King James Bible Fraser you've seen a lot more of these messages than have come out today tell us what was your impressions of reading them I've, I've been reading thousands of these messages over, over quite some period of time now and it's you, you almost get um so you feel you're swimming in a sea of Matt Hancock verbiage, really. <laughs> the thing is, what jumped out at me most was what wasn't there, rather than what was. When you see the sort of decisions that they're making, pretty big ones, literally deciding whether it's um, against the law of people to go out of the house or not, whether it's school children should be masked up, you'd expect these decisions to be taken with a pretty good amount of evidence. And what you notice is that fairly early on, they go. They start off being quite open-minded, thinking, you know, hang on, is lockdown really necessary, given that people are not going to restaurants, not going to pubs? So perhaps lockdown wouldn't really add anything. 
uh, in my view, that, that was um, a very good question, which they could have held sight of. I mean, that's what Sweden thought, ultimately, and Sweden managed to get through this with far less economic damage and, um, and less per capita COVID as well. And then that moves very quickly into the sort of group mentality, that this is lockdown, this is what we want. Anybody who questions this is therefore confused or malign or uh, in league with a hard right, etc. So it goes tribal very quickly. Now, reading all of this and knowing these people as I do, it, what struck me was, first of all, there's the group mentality of this. You can think of this, I think of like, um, like my, my son, Alex, he's a, as most 14-year-olds involved lots of WhatsApp groups. And he was just telling me how exhausting it is because you need to keep a different persona in these different groups. So this group will have its sort of persona, as it were. And you can see the change in tone between messages sent in one group, messaging sent to another. But the group that was deciding lockdown, the big one that had the prime minister in it, etc., and others, that was a very sort of gung-ho group. There never seemed to be any doubt that any restriction was for the good and that any quibbles to those restrictions were from the sort of swivel-eyed right. And this is a theme you see right across the end. So what jumped out to me was the lack of evidence. I mean, surely you'd think if you're going to order children to wear masks, mm. you'd have to be reasonably confident that that would bring significant benefits. I mean, everybody knows it will make learning more difficult. We've had a survey where half of teachers and half of people said they made learning more difficult. No surprise there. So surely you'd need some reasonable grounds for believing that it was worth that trade-off. But there's no mention of trade-offs at all. Only mention of, of what benefits... The, the restrictions would do, the buys of Samar, etc. So you can see how in the absence of cabinet government, because right now the cabinet wasn't being told what was happening, mm. in the absence of parliamentary scrutiny, because the opposition wasn't opposing, in the absence of any other kind of scrutiny, because these were being taken emergency powers in a black box, nobody really saw what they were, then the decisions affecting the lives of millions were taken basically on political judgment, not with any real scientific backing. And this sort of cavalier attitude of this, the absence of evidence, the absence of proper deliberation, is really quite breathtaking. And I should say one other thing, that in the first few weeks I would have understood and forgiven this. Nobody knew what was happening when the pandemic was hurtling towards us. There were very credible estimates that it could have killed a um, quarter of a million people. So, of course, you're going to make very big decisions. You have no idea if they're going to be right or not. I'd hate to be in that position. But a year into lockdown, the emergency has passed, and yet they're still making these decisions on very flimsy evidential basis while publicly dressing them up as being backed by the science. And this is day one, and obviously all the attention is focused on Matt Hancock's role in all of this, but I've uh, seen you, your column about this and you know your tweet last night. There's definitely going to be more questions to be answered by a wider range of political actors. Yeah, we, all, we see this through Matt Hancock's eyes, but the great thing about the, the document dump is that it's not just his messages, everybody. You can see other people talking to each other on his thread. So if you're on a, a WhatsApp group with 12 people, as a lot of people will know, you can get up in the morning sometimes and find they've been discussing things without you getting involved. So we can see a whole bunch of people, how they saw the pandemic. Interesting to see that Rishi Sunak was also excluded from this. I think he wasn't regarded as being pro-lockdown enough. Mm. So there's so many themes which the Hancock papers, or the lockdown papers, as the Telegraph's calling them, are going to disclose over the coming days. There are dozens, perhaps hundreds of stories to come out of this. But what it adds up to is a unique psychological profile 
of what happens when a group of men are given untrammeled power to dispense with the liberty of the country as they see fit. And I do wonder, when it comes to what we're going to see in the coming days, as Fraser just touched on, Rishi Sunak was clearly, at the time, the chief lockdown hawk, um, though some tried to deny this or play this down, and definitely an effort to play down tensions between Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock. But we're speaking on a week where Rishi Sunak's actually having a pretty good week. Some in the party thinks his best week since being Prime Minister. And he's often trying to prove to the right of his party that mm. he's one of them and they're saying, oh yes, you vote for Brexit. We just don't we just don't quite see it in the same way. And, and I wonder if what we're going to see in the coming days could actually add to this momentum Rishi Sunak has where those on the right of the party are taking a second look at him. Yeah, because this is a curious thing, of course, we saw during last year's summer's leadership contest, uh, Fraser, which is that somehow... Sunak, a Brexiteer, ended up not being supported by most of the Brexiteers on the sort of ERG wing, and yet Trussell Remainer was. Is there perhaps a a sense that actually Rishi Sunak is maybe the most effective weapon that the centre-right or right wing of the party actually have? It's a difficult question. Right now, he, of course, his big achievement is the Northern Ireland protocol. This wasn't on his list of five things he wanted to do this year. But I think he will run into more problems with the small boats, for example. Is he going to, that's one, that is on his list. Is he going to do anything about that? Economic growth, um, the budgets are coming in next week. I mean, he's, I think this is, he's going through a good period right now, which is why he will not welcome lockdown, managing to sort of um, bomb his sort of his victory lap, as it were. And he's saying, wait until the inquiry, of course. But I think the inquiry is now, I think the main purpose of the inquiry is to just allow politicians to kick all of these questions into the long grass until after the election. I mean, Rishi Sunak does come out pretty well from all of these things because he was always a voice of moderation, mm. the voice of querying. So although while this is good for him personally, it's not good for his party. And if I were Tory Prime Minister, I would think I don't want to hear a word about from this inquiry until the general, after the general election. It, because when you, I think he will know better than anything else the horrors which are waiting there for certain senior Tories. And after reading them, I'm not quite sure how many people are going to be more likely to vote Tory than they were before. And quickly, just talking about former Tory Prime Ministers, Katie, it seems now that Boris Johnson won't be making a public intervention on the protocol. I think, as ever, Boris Johnson is keeping his options open. But the suggestion from allies is that this is not something we're about to see imminently, at least. And of course, Boris Johnson had plenty of warnings in advance, mm. um, some free sources close to him, some public, that he didn't agree with Rishi Sunak's approach in the protocol. I think the fact that the majority of the Tory party has got behind it at Prime Minister's questions today, there was no obvious internal opposition on show. You had the European Research Group meeting last night. I think that group is divided in terms of whether or not they back the deal, but it doesn't feel as though it's this huge moment in terms of whether this is a, a success or Rishi Sunak or not. Um, and at the 22, it's pretty warm, though MPs want to see what's next. And therefore, I think that is all adding to the sense that were Boris Johnson to choose to try and lead a revolution or a comeback based on this now, he'd be leading revolution with probably the only, only the most senior old-timer Eurosceptics in tow, mm. which I don't think is quite what was initially envisioned. But... As ever, things could change, the mood could turn, and then Boris Johnson might refuse to speak. It's beginning to look like Kemi Badenoch might be his next target, actually, not Rishi Sunak. I mean, if you look at him, she's beginning to get some fire now from Priti Patel, from Nadim Zahawi. Interesting, if you're Boris Johnson and you're planning a comeback, Mm. you would look and think, right, who's the most likely candidate to succeed Rishi Sunak? It's um, Miss Badenoch. 
So you would try to put the skins under her first, and Sunak second. Watch out, Cammy. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.